welcome to another edition of the Purple Theory Podcast, a, a very special edition of the Purple Theory Podcast, should I say, because it is uh, NFL draft season and we have on with us tonight none other than uh, one of the internet's most preeminent draft gurus, uh, Benjamin Robinson, he of uh, Grinding the Mocks fame, among other uh, inter- internet fame. Uh, Benjamin, how are you this evening? Doing well. Um, yeah, I wouldn't call myself a guru because I don't watch that much tape, which is kind of why I named the site Grinding the Mocks, because I don't know what I'm looking at, and I just enjoy watching football when it happens. So this is kind of my way of getting out of watching really crappy YouTube highlight cutups on players so that I can kind of get a sense of where they're going to go in the draft. Well, I was I was informed by Sage Rosenfeld the other day that in fact only a thousand people on Earth know how to watch. It's not even film, worth it so. for me. Not even worth it. I can never. Why even try? <laughs> Why even try? Yeah, exactly. Um, also spoken like a true guru, saying that you're not a guru. That's very. Uh, it's very on brand. <laughs> um, so Benjamin, for our, our our listeners who are TCU and Big Twelve specific, um, tell us about uh, you know who you are, who your site is, and and kind of the whole story of how you got from. Uh, guy who's interested in mock drafts to having maybe the the best resource online for figuring out kind of what the consensus projections for these drafts are. Sure. So, you know, kind of started on my friend, uh, college friend's couch in Pittsburgh where I went to college, go Panthers. Um, Shout out to Brennan Marion, friend of the program. Yeah, no, very excited. Uh, Would love for him to be our eventual offensive coordinator. Um, But that's besides the point. But yes, so I'm sitting on my my friend's couch um, in 2018 draft and we're watching NFL Network because we don't want to watch the ESPN broadcast. We're just kind of listening. And, you know, I have an econ degree. My buddy's a political science guy. So we're kind of social science-y, you know, economics guys. We're kind of sitting there and, you know, you hear a pick come by and sometimes you kind of know that, you know, hey, this is where a player might go. And you can really tell when like a real reaches or when, you get somebody who's fallen really far, depending on kind of just overall buzz. Uh, but we kind of wanted to look deeper. And so we were talking and we, were sl- we said to each other, you know, how do you know when a player's supposed to go? I don't know. I mean, there's tons of different ideas, mock drafts all over the place. But, you know, where do you really, how do you really quantify like what a reach is or what a, a steal is in, in draft? And so we're kind of talking and we said, you know, mock drafts are basically data. Like what if, what if uh, what I'm like, what if I compiled that and kind of analyzed it in as a, as a data set? And so that's kind of where it started. Uh, that journey started was just kind of uh, and that's the great thing about the draft is it brings together fans of many different teams. You know, like I'm a, of a Bengals fan I'm from Cincinnati originally and my buddy's a Steelers fan, but we can kind of commiserate and have fun um, when it comes to the draft. So kind of went down that rabbit hole and it's taken me to where it is today, where you know, three, uh, four years later, this is my kind of third or fourth draft that I've been doing this project on where we have a really strong track record of being able to predict where players go in the draft. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And it's cool because I mean, it's, it's like a, I mean, it's a, it's a one-sided matching program, uh, problem to get nerdy and econ right there. Um, but there, there are so many wheels about, you know, fit and relative value and, and kind of, you know, does a team have a a five-year plan or they're trying to execute and where does, you know, the player they're trying to take, uh, go or teams just doing best available. Like there's all these kind of underlying and unmeasured strategy things that we'll never really know. Um, and so that, that's super interesting to see like how people forecast and whether, um, aggregate data can kind of give us a better idea. So, so yeah, here's your, here's your opportunity. Um, brag flex, how accurate have you been, uh, kind of aggregating? Well, before we do that, 
what does your site do? Uh, if someone knows what the internet is and knows what a mock draft is, but doesn't know very much beyond that, what is, what does your site do? Sure. So, you know, basically the idea is every single mock draft that I have in kind of uh, the collection that I've, that I've put together that I've scraped from the internet. What we do is we basically look at their players kind of change over time um, and just kind of use it's like a very simple kind of model. So basically what we do is we look at change over time in the mock drafts and kind of model it as a kind of changing. It's really a very simple process. The idea is that over time in the draft process, we learn more about the players. We learn more about how their uh, relative value looks in mock drafts. And so we can kind of just over time, see the, the trend in, in where people are projecting these players to go. And the general idea is that, and it kind of comes from like my background in economics which is that, and um, I studied a lot of kind of urban and real estate economics, housing issues. And we often put a kind of a lot of stock into prices. Um, and so in this case, a draft pick is basically a price. You're saying, hey, at this price, at this place in the draft, this is kind of where I see it. And there's all these things that are kind of embedded. So some of those things that you talked about, some of those hidden things are technically kind of embedded inside of the mock draft selection. By saying that Trayvon Merrick is going at pick 25, you're saying that you think that he is one of the best players in the draft at a position of importance that teams might want to take a look at. You're saying he's athletic. Um, you're saying he's productive. Um, you're saying that he's liked in these ways um, and that people view him in this way. So it's like kind of my sly way of saying that it's a kind of a market-based view of the data. And it also comes from this idea in social science that you know, one expert isn't necessarily better than another expert at consistently being accurate. There's a guy named Philip Tetlock at the University of Pennsylvania who studied this and written um, quite a lot about forecasting and about kind of these things that he calls super forecasters, people who are kind of really good at forecasting and what makes them good at it. Um, but for the most part, what he's learned is that experts are it's really hard to be consistent year to year to year. And so you might you'll be better off do looking at a kind of basket of the forecasts than at the forecast itself. And this is something that's been studied quite a lot. So it's got like a pretty strong evidence base. And so, you know, just decided to kind of apply that to the draft. Um, and I'm not the first person to do this ever. I thought I was for a long time, but uh, Brian Burke, AKA like the, the godfather of football analytics did something kind of similar. Um, and he still does um, for now that he works for ESPN, they have a metric called ESPN draft predictor, but, um, I think that overall, my work is a little bit stronger than his, at least in the the one year sample of publicly released data that they've shared. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I've seen Burke do like the probability that someone's left on the board or something. So it's kind of like what you're doing from the other from the other purview. Saying that about real estate prices is fascinating because I hadn't thought about this, but like it's exactly like a house. Like there's certain characteristics of a house that are attractive to certain buyers. And those are going to vary based on taste, preference, strategy, whatever. And so kind of seeing what, what, what price do they land on? That's, that's a really interesting way to, to do that or uh, to think of this. Um, okay. So now I want to come back to basically what you're doing is saying, I have an available, um, I have an available world of mock drafts from reputable sources. Are you limiting where you filter those in? Or are you just saying anyone I can get data on, I'm going to bring that in and that's of good repute. I'm going to bring that in. Or do you have kind of a panel that you um, have limited the, the mock drafts to? So what I come from um, in this sort of world is like a, a little bit of a, I'm going to let the data tell me what is and what isn't. 
So we have an assumption that, you know, people who are kind of professional draft analysts are better at this than others, uh, but I don't know that. And so to me, what I do in my data set is I, I rate the different people making mock drafts based on historic accuracy that I, and the data that I have, and I upweight and downweight the different mock drafts based on that. Um, and so you'll get like a Daniel Jeremiah from NFL Network and we'll rate him higher than, you know, average Joe Schmo who writes for a website and publishes a mock draft. Uh, but at the same time, um, I wanna have kind of a vast array of outcomes to choose from uh, when we look at the data. And so sometimes it helps uh, to have data, even if it's from a source that you wouldn't think of as reputable. But in some cases, my main point is just to be humble. You know, we don't know who's better at this, but um, so you end up with what you might call like quite a bit of like groupthink. Um, and so there are a lot of times where people who make mock drafts, even the really good ones, don't think about kind of team tendencies. So some teams tend to take players earlier or later than expected. And then they also oftentimes don't think about kind of historical norms when it comes to how the draft runs. Like in the first round, like having more than four quarterbacks is really rare. So this year there's potential for five, but every now and then you see a mock draft with six and you just kind of have to shrug your head that said, well, four is already really high. We're already pushing the historical norms. Um, is this draft class that different? And so that helps too. Um, but the, so there's a crowd, they're influenced by thought leaders. They may not always hundred uh, percent get the kind of tendencies right. Um, but at the same time, the goal shouldn't be, it depends what your objective function is. So my objective function is to have the lowest <laughs> um, like mean squared errors I possibly can. So I'm not trying to get as many picks right. I wanna be in and around the area as much as possible. And I don't wanna miss on earlier picks. I'd rather miss on later picks than earlier picks. So that's my objective function. But oftentimes we don't ask what the mock draft person's objective function is, which probably is like, it can be to start a conversation. It can be to, um, you know, copy someone else. You know, it, it can really varies. But for me, I have, when you're doing this sort of, statistics and stuff, it's important to know what your objective function is. And for me, yeah. like I said, it's to minimize the, the error as much as I can, especially focusing on getting the top picks right. Because for, for a minimized error uh, for, for uh, people at home, that, that's going to end up being more like I'm on average better at, at, at predicting who's generally available at a given pick not necessarily the realization of which team was taken. So like after the first, you know, there's more or less certainty in the first couple picks and getting those right is really important. But after that, it's more, you know, am I, am I confident that this person's going to be available at this pick? Uh, and that's really where you get value, I think, in, in some of these kind of aggregate, aggregate models there. Um, so, okay, we've built that back up. I'm coming back to this question now. Um, flex, show off, don't be humble. How good is your model? So um, it varies year by year. So basically I have a model for each year. Um, so we'll talk about last year. So last year, you know, it's kind of an uncertain draft. Um, we had the pandemic, teams were doing the draft virtually um, and there, was a, there wasn't a pro day circuit really. So you didn't get as much information coming out of the pro days. Um, and so in terms of my methodology, you know, when I look at my data, um, you know, when I look at my objective function, I was in the you know 95th percentile of first round mocks last year, just using the rankings. Um, so 
no massaging of the data, no, I'm gonna write a mock draft even though I do do that. Um, so yeah, the, the data is like pretty strong that this sort of thing, I can be as, like I said, I don't watch the prospects. I follow along on Twitter, but it doesn't influence any of my data work. Just using the data, you know, I can be up there in accuracy by my numbers in the area of some of the best draft analysts in the industry. Like I said, I don't watch, I watch football for enjoyment. I don't watch pe- football to dissect prospects. I, enjoy, I watch football because I enjoy it. And so, um, yeah, so I, I mean, that's like, the I'm, I'm humble about it. Like the data is, I'm not doing this. This is, this is information that comes from people who watch the tape theoretically, right? Um, so I'm not necessarily saying like, hey, like I do this all alone. Like I do this, I, I carry everybody with me a <laughs> little bit yeah. by little bit, even if they're a small part of the data set, they contributed to, to the overall output of it. And it's just me collating that and presenting it. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I think, you know, stuff like if you're pulling in something from, you know, like Broncos fan 47, who's like, oh yeah, um, Trevor Lawrence is actually going to fall to number 10 and we're going to get him. The leverage on that has to be so small just because it's, it's such a huge outlier from what everybody else is saying. So it probably comes out in the wash. Um, I had a couple of thoughts there and I wrote them down because I'm a crazy person. Um, one, the draft last year was like, in retrospect, charming. Now we have to put a huge asterisk on that because People died. there was a pandemic and we thought the world was ending and there was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of high stress, uh, a lot of sleepless nights. But that was one of the first times in the pandemic where I felt like on, on Twitter and then in my real life friends, we were doing something together. I, I FaceTimed probably six different friends during the first round of the draft. I never watched the NFL draft. Uh, live. I'm always like, well, I'll just see it later. Watch it live, FaceTime's friends, and you know, sheer genuine enjoyment about something. So I'm very excited to to kind of replicate that again uh, this year, seeing how fun it was last year. Um, and and in terms of watching film, I just want to shout out someone. I saw this on my on my feed today. Like Brandon Thorne is a guy. Some of these guys who are just like literally grinding film are like, hey, here's my you know, here's a three hour film breakdown on my 48th ranked tackle. And I'm like, dude, I could name you 12 tackles, maybe. That are in this thing. That's just incredible. Um, okay. Dedication. Dedication. Yeah, VR. seriously. Okay. I have one more, um, one more big picture question. We're going to get in the nitty gritty. We're going to start talking about TCU and some big 12 uh, prospects and kind of the first round. Um, there was not a combine this year. Um, do you think that affects um, the perception of college athletes from different levels of schools. And so I'm going to uh, put some bones on that, but do you think that not having a combine is going to make uh, evaluations trend more towards bigger teams that can put on pro days and kind of have more professional experiences there? Um, or do you think it's really on average, not going to matter uh, that there wasn't a combine where, you know, these potential undiscovered athletes could come and get these really big numbers in front of people? Yeah, it's, I think it's a tough question. Um, you know, for me, when we looked at what happened last year, last year we had a record low number of players from um, outside of like Division One that were drafted. And then in terms of the unsigned, like the undrafted free agent class and the, the NFL um, like op- football research people or whatever, Mike Lopez's shop had this chart last year. It was really, it was really quite, it was a deviation from the historical norms where I think the pro days mainly serve as a way to get guys who are kind of interesting, but they don't have data on them. So, you know, for example, most of the major programs have junior days uh, every year. And so teams send 
their area scouts to those junior days. So they have data on players, not just the combine data. So I think for a guy like, you know, for like your TCU guys, like our Darius Washington and Trayvon Merrick, like they probably are unaffected by the lack of a combine. Um, but, you know, players from, you know, schools like North Texas may be more likely to be affected because they're not getting a lot of attention before anyway, um, except maybe if you're like Jalen Darden or whatever. But, you know, for the most part, uh, it's going to be hard to, to, for you to get seen. And that's just the most important thing. So I think that for the most part, most prospects and this draft is kind of interesting because there's the lowest number of people who have signed with agents in a long time. Like there's only been like a really, there was an article from, I think the, the ex Deadspin people. Um, and they've said that basically according to the um, NFLPA, like the number of people, players who have signed with agents this year is just so small people taking advantage of the extra year to return to school. So there's a smaller class this year, but we have less data on them. And in some ways we have censored data on them too, because, you know, you don't have a full, um, you know, out of conference schedule. So this year, some of the evaluations are hard. Um, next year's draft will be kind of more of a bumper crop because you'll have players who took on that extra year of eligibility uh, come back and, and be a part of this next year's class. So I expect there'd be kind of a deviation next year, but this year I think you'll see a trend similar to what happened last year where, you know, fewer players in the smaller rung schools make it as undrafted free agents. And a lot of them are definitely not going to get drafted outside of some of the, the players that you see like um, Quinn Miners from Wisconsin Whitewater, who's kind of the darling of the D2. Like that's a rarity because he went to the senior bowl but the senior bowl doesn't take many of those guys. Yeah. Um, you do not have to comment on this. I just want to say this out loud. It would not surprise me if the senior bowl is a um, paid advertising firm um, that agents and students are paying to get uh, pumped up for their draft stock and have all this advertising. Um, you don't have to comment on that. That's just, uh, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, Let's let's talk about some TCU prospects and let's talk about the first round. So I'm pulling up right now on your website, Grinding the Mox. You go to the landing page. You can go to Prospect Trends and you get this cool tool where you can select individuals and kind of see over time from, uh, you know, last summer, basically, which probably is when they start um, drafting until now, what kind of happens. Um, and so I pulled up three guys on the same graft, which, which is just an incredible tool. And I can't imagine how annoying this was to make in, in shiny in R. So, um, kudos to you for, for, for this, this, how good this looks. Um, but so the first person I have is I have, um, Trevon Merrick, who is TCU's strong safety, the, the top safety in the draft, um, almost by consensus, he and Washington came into the season, the highest rated, highest graded safeties by pro football focus. There was a lot of expectations. Um, and he actually rose. Uh, so he was kind of, you know, round two guy last summer, um, middle of the season was, was verging on round one and is now solidly in that 16 to 32 range, uh, here on your graph. So 16 to 32 being, uh, kind of the second half of the first round. So what influences a player to rise like that? And where do you see, uh, Merrick going, uh, to what team? So, I mean, I think what influences a player to rise in the draft is, they, they have a spectacular season. And so they also that they separate themselves, they distinguish themselves. So you're right. I think that 
Um, I haven't looked at Arif Hassan's who writes for the athletic. He has this consensus big board. It wouldn't surprise me if Trayvon Merrick was the consensus number one safety in on that as well. Um, so I think it, it helps that he's kind of distinguished himself, but also the, the relative strength of the safety class this year is, is kind of smaller. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, like I said, I didn't watch a lot of, a lot of him. I barely kind of watched the few teams that I, that I root for. Um, but basically when you see someone rise like that, it means that they distinguish themselves and are viewed as a player that's elite at their position. So um, teams and mock drafters will kind of try to find ways to mock players to teams potentially that have needs for safety. So, you know, teams like Dallas Cowboys, um, yeah, stuff like that. But to me, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm, I'm very much good for saying which team he might go to. Um, you know, I would say Jacksonville, I think at 25 is a good spot for him uh, just because they have so many draft picks. Um, they value speed and athleticism. Urban Meyer um, is good as the coach there now. And they have, you know, personnel who used to work for the 49ers um, who drafted kind of uh, guys like Jimmy Ward in, in the first round. Um, who came out of Northern Illinois when like Harbaugh was still coaching at the 49ers. So, you know, to me, I think Merrick, I'd say like in my mock draft, you know, I, I think will be coming out later this month. Um, I think Jacksonville is a good spot. I also think a sneaky good spot is Tampa Bay. Um, they run, they play a lot of the, the multiple three safety defense where you kind of use one of your safeties as an extra in the box linebacker, but they're also kind of, like a, a bigger slot corner, so you can kind of match up guy. Um, and so Mer- I think Merrick could fall in that, that in that way. Um, but I still think he's really very likely to be a first round pick, and uh, any team would be you know lucky to have his services as the as the top player at his position in the draft. Yeah, and that's I mean uh, you know the TCU plays that four two five, and and Merrick did not play that kind of I don't I don't know what we call it today Jack Star cowboy whatever everybody has a different name for it but that super athletic guy who just does a lot of things he <laughs> didn't play that position um because he was more suited to kind of the strong safety but in the nfl i think he would uh definitely fit in there uh quite well um so he seems to be uh, another um tcu first round draft pick which they had uh, uh two last year jeff gladney and uh ross blacklock both both went no hey, jalen rager jalen rager black uh, <laughs> um Jalen Rager's on our bad side because he spent his entire senior year being uh, loudly mad at Max to uh, uh, to to pump up his draft stock. But um, yeah, so and Jalen Rager, uh, and so this will be the third uh, I- the third in two years, um, uh, the the second defensive uh, consecutive year that they've had a defensive uh, secondary player. Um, that that kind of brings us to the 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 next player who's kind of now on the fringe of even. Uh, is he a top prospect or not? But our, our Darius Washington actually last summer was higher than uh, Trevon Merrig in a lot of these mock drafts. Um, he does have the knock that he is a little bit smaller. Um, and so I get, as we get more into the season of scrutiny and kind of these measurables that a guy who's smaller is going to, um, is going to potentially suffer uh, a, a, as he gets compared to some other players. Um, also he had a bad season. Um, so I don't know if you have data on this. I'm totally pretty on the spot. Do you have uh, any sense of like, who are the biggest risers and fallers in this, in this class? Uh, a professional podcast host would have given you this question like two days ago. So I want to apologize to the audience on my behalf. I'm putting Ben on the spot here and it's totally fine. If you say no, not a big deal. I mean, the biggest risers are probably the quarterbacks, um, Mac Jones and Zach Wilson. Um, 
they're among they're up there you know there are players that kind of come into the collective uh, collective conscience at certain points in the draft season you know i think like greg newsom from northwestern um but yeah there's a lot of kind of um players who start the process in the first round and, and drop and so you know there's always this kind of um changing of the guard a little bit throughout the year as we kind of see players and then hear about players and then thought leaders talk about players in the, in the draft season after the, after the season is over. But yeah, I mean, you, you have to, you can't talk about this draft without talking about Zach Wilson and Mac Jones, who, you know, I knew Mac Jones was like a pretty good quarterback. You know, I'm a Michigan fan and I watched him torch Michigan in the bowl game they had. Um, I mean, they had, they still have amazing receivers, but he was still throwing the ball really well. Um, so I knew he was pretty good. Like I thought he was a draftable prospect, but um, I don't think there was a lot of people who would have thought that Zach Wilson the year before would have the kind of uh, season that he had. So quarterbacks get a lot of shine because they're the most important. Um, but yeah, it can happen. Um, yeah. So the quarterbacks, like at the beginning of the year, the quarterbacks that people were saying were like part of the first round were you know, Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence, same as it ever was Trey Lance, same as it ever was, but you had, you know, Jamie Newman, who had transferred to Georgia, and people were assuming that his transfer to Georgia would be a harbinger for a big year. That feels um, like another lifetime. That feels like a parallel universe that I dreamt about, and that did not actually happen. Exactly. Uh, the Jamie Newman hype was out of control for a minute. Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean hey, it, it makes sense. I mean, he was he had shown a lot of promise, and uh, but you know, he he probably maybe more than a lot of different players was punished for not playing. It's really kind of interesting and. This is, I don't necessarily have a good reason for this, um, but there are some players who are punished for opting out at the same time as other players who opted out are kind of not being punished in the data. It's very like selective enforcement wise. I noticed it a little bit with one of the my Pitt alums, um, Jalen Twyman, who's a defensive tackle, played for Pitt, um, had really strong two years as a starter and then decided he didn't want to play, whether it's for because he felt strong about his position or got advice or pandemic fears, like all rational and fine reasons to not play. Um, but I see it a little bit, I saw it a little bit there and then I kind of thought about it and you see it quite a bit to me most starkly at the offensive tackle position with the debate between Penny Sewell, offensive tackle from Oregon and Rashawn Slater, offensive tackle from Northwestern. Rashawn Slater's, you know, a, a very, very, very good prospect. But no one was talking about, not enough to say nobody, but I think people have thought of Penny Sewell in a much better way. Um, and I've not really heard a lot of people talk about how Rashawn Slater opted out from the Big Ten season this year. But I hear it all the time with Penny Sewell. Um, and, you know, maybe it's because Slater had like one good game where he stopped Chase Young a little bit, a little bit. Um, and, and that's kind of been a, a good, a good a performance for him that has impacted people's perception of him quite a bit. But yeah, I've seen a little bit of uneven kind of treatment of players, depending on for whatever reason you want to look at it. But Jamie Newman is one of the ones that has his stock has taken the biggest hit in part because I think he didn't play. Yeah. So, and, and it sucks and, for him. Yeah. Well, and, and, and too, if I, I, I don't want to say this confidently because I may be misremembering this, but I think he cited like actual mental health issues. I think he had a close relative that he lost to, to COVID. And, and so, man, you just totally hate like, yeah. yeah, you would just love a little empathy there. Um, yes. And so that that's interesting that, I mean, our Darius Washington is someone who in a year when a lot of people played out, uh, opted out and, and saw their stock 
you know, tread water or improve our Darius Washington played and he had a bad year and, and it is absolutely reflected, um, in these, in these numbers and in, and in your numbers, it looks like, um, I mean, he just, he just kind of plummets steadily. And then you can see again, um, just a, a little bit more kind of a downward trend, uh, as we get into, you know, the off season of February, March, April, where we're looking at measurables and everything. Um, do you think that there's a, a bias is a bad word because it sounds pejorative, but do you think that there's a bias towards offense in these mock drafts, especially as uh, we get into the off season and we start looking back and we're able to quantify offensive ability or understand offensive uh, ability a little bit better? I'd say that there's, there's some bias in the quarterback position, but I wouldn't say that there's necessarily bias to either side of the ball more or less in mock drafts. I think this year specifically is a year where, the receiver class and the quarterback class and the wide receiver class are viewed as strengths of the class. Um, whereas in the past, people have said like last year was a good, you know, cornerback class, but it kind of varies depending on the talent. I mean, also there's this shift in college where, you know, we're putting guys that maybe were running backs in the past in the receiver position. So I think there's this, as the college game becomes way more pass heavy, you're seeing more players that might've been, on the running back side kind of become smaller receivers. Um, so to me, I don't think that there's a huge biased offense defense, but we do see bias in the data around quarterbacks where quarterbacks are often overrated. You see this quite a bit with guys that have been super productive. You know, my biggest one was kind of um, Drew Locke in 2019. I, he was a consensus first round pick and he was the second rounder. And then, you know, saw a guy like Will Greer as well um, in that year from West Virginia um, who, you know, had a really, really awesome college career and he was kind of propped up and ended up going probably like maybe a round later uh, than people thought he would. And so people tend to prop up quarterbacks this year. The, the, the players that are getting propped up, I think potentially it could be Mac. Mac Jones is an example of that. He might be getting propped up higher than where he'll go. I, that's like one of the most uncertain parts of the draft. But then you see guys like Davis Mills from Stanford and Kellen Mond from Texas A&M getting propped up in, in certain ways. Maybe they'll go in the second round or the third round, but um, yeah, who knows? I'm still waiting for the other shoe to drop because, you know, it it happens quite often um, where players are kind of uh, quarterback specifically are kind of magicked up higher um, than they actually end up going. Yeah. Um, I just have a million questions and I'm trying to write them down so that I don't go all over the place. Um, uh, okay. So I want to talk, I want to talk very quickly about this, the last TCU player. Cause again, only defensive players for TCU are, are kind of on the board right now. Um, Garrett Wallow is, is another linebacker. Um, and he, you know, started in the one eighties, had himself a really good season. And then in the middle of February, just had a huge drop off. Um, and then, and then a little spike as of recent, and, you know, he's back up to potentially maybe a third round, fourth round, probably, probably closer to fourth round there doing the math. Um, what do you think is a reason for a prospect to spike so dramatically in the off season or, or uh, spike downward? What's the plummet so dramatically in the off season? It's usually a small sample at first. Um, and then as you get more mock drafts, you can kind of be more, um, you kind of get a better sense of where they're going to go. So to me, like, you might've seen him, like people were like, Oh, like he's a good player. Like I'm going to put him in mock draft. Um, so yeah, I think that's mostly what it has to do with. And so, you know, for a player like him um, you know, it's, he's outside my top 150 players. You know, I think he could get drafted, 
Um, but if it, if it is, it'll be kind of probably in the later part of the, the last day of the draft. But um, but yeah, I think a lot of it is small sample size issues. And so as you watch throughout the year, people will say, and I see this quite often because I look at my data before I publish it every week, you'll see a player pop up in, uh, in the first round or something like that. And it's always because, you know, we're looking at a extrapolating from a small uh, sample uh, trend, basically. So, you know, for me, yeah, like it wouldn't surprise me if sometimes you get players where they kind of pop up really early. And then they kind of go back down to like naturally where the data expects them to go. Interesting. And so, so obviously there's a lot more variance the further you go because these are all in the draft because these are all independent or excuse me, dependent on each other, the, yep. these picks. So do you find that you're, um, you know, lo- losing a lot of ground in the later rounds um, or how many of these do you, you know, these like sixth and seventh round picks that, could be undrafted or undrafted free agents. Uh, are you like losing a lot of value there in terms of your mean squared error, or do you do pretty well across the across the six rounds or seven rounds? Oh, it's bad later on. I mean, um, so yeah. I mean, what you end up with is doing really well in the first round, fine-ish in the second round, but it decays each day of the draft just because um, there's a lot of incomplete information in a mock draft. So. Most mock drafts are only first round, so you only get 32 picks. So what you end up with is a lot of players in the first round conversation will have, you know, a lot of mock drafts. Players on the lower end have smaller ones. And so I do my best to try to collect as many multi-round mock drafts as possible to get as much of a sample. But sometimes those come from the same kind of operators. And so they don't really necessarily change their mock draft all that much because they're just like, it's really hard to make an original 250 plus mock draft every single time. So um, for those that do, I take my hats off to them. Uh, but, but yeah, so you end up with players who kind of end up being mocked a lot, probably sometimes in the same position. So, um, but yeah, I, I think you end up with basically a much less diverse and much less representative uh, panel at that point of the people that do that. Most people are just doing the first round, maybe the second. And so I do my best every year to try to collect a larger proportion of mock drafts in my sample that are multi-round, but it's hard just because uh, there's not a lot out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, at some point you're just taking lottery tickets, you know, in the last couple, in the last couple rounds. Yeah. And so to me, like I said in the beginning as well, my focus isn't being accurate on every pick it's being within kind of within a certain range. And that range is increases as the, as the draft goes on basically. So and uh, my goal is not necessarily to be right, right about the later picks is to be more right about the early picks. And that's why I, I want to be better there because those are the most valuable players in the draft. Yeah. Do you, um, okay. We're going to get in the crazy ideas portion of this podcast if I don't restrain myself. So I'm going to ask this question and then we'll come back to, to the quarterback question. Uh, do you think there's an opportunity for like uh, an unexploited opportunity for arbitrage in the late rounds? Like if you were really dialed in on your value and you're really dialed in on I'm pretty sure these guys are going to be available at any given pick. Um, why do teams not, you know, trade around and shuffle and try and try and uh, get a little extra value in the late rounds uh, more than they do? So number one is that the teams have much more information than the public does. So there's some things where and play and the way that teams set their draft boards is is very different. So you know there are 250 some picks in the draft, but teams will have a hundred or some players on their board. So there's some players who I think is a value, but some teams may not even have them on their board. 
So, um, for example, last year there was a guy from Auburn, offensive tackle named Prince Tega Winogo, who people thought was you know, he was a very good college player, and it came out in the process that he had really bad knees, basically. And so it wouldn't surprise me that a lot of teams were just like, well, we're not drafting him. Well, who cares that he's my, you know, 100-whatever ranked player? Like, that's not going to fly for a lot of teams. So in the practical sense, not every player is on every team's board. And that, and that makes sense because it's a lot easier to, to select a player out of 150 than it is to select a player out of the whole universe of players in the draft, which could be from year to year, could be in the thousands of players. So the teams kind of simplify and um, some, and some using data and using scouting in both, right. To kind of get the board down to, Hey, these are the players who we think we want to take that are our players for good or for bad. There's also not necessarily um, like trades are not frictionless. It's not like a Mac mock draft simulator where I can use like, Oh, I'm getting all these offers. I'm getting all these offers. Like trade, the trade market may be, it might be le- like less liquid than we think probably. Um, and there's also a sense of, it's not a single round game. It's not like, Hey, you and I are playing a game right now. And, you know, if I fleece you in this trade, for example, like who else is going to want to trade with me? Or maybe you'll never want to trade with me again. So it's a repeating game, basically these trade, uh, these, these trades. And so there's a, and there's also the people are friends with each other. It's a small world and they want to get jobs. So there's sometimes like a, a, a lot of different pieces at play to why teams don't do that a lot. But teams who do mostly use trading down in the draft to kind of as an insurance policy. So like, for example, the Minnesota Vikings, Rick Spielman, their general manager last year had a ton of draft picks where they traded down a bunch of different times, but it was very smart. And they basically used the end of their draft. They had a ton of picks in like the sixth and seventh round to draft players that they basically wanted to make sure that they got as, instead of having to wait to see who they would sign with as undrafted free agents. So at that point, you're just taking, you know, like we said, like kind of lottery picks, like I'm going to buy it, get a card, get a card, get a card. Um, but there's also the sense of some teams that are kind of very stuck in their ways and they're like, I'm here, I'm going to pick here. So there's a lot of different factors at play. But I think mostly is it is that um, not every player is on every board and trades are not as easy to do as people think. Yeah. Interesting. That's when you were talking about injuries, that's something like I, I, I had circled, um, like Caleb Farley for Virginia tech. I see a lot of people have him really, really high at cornerback. Um, but he had, you know, crazy big back surgery kind of a deal. And that could be something where there's divergent, you know, public draft boards say he's good and he's healthy now and public might, might, um, or private data might, might have a little bit of different there. Um, okay. We've, we have beat around the bush for far too long. It's time. I need you to settle the, uh, I need you to settle the quarterback question. Uh, is Mac, is Mac Jones really going to go at three? You know, I've, I've been tracking this a little bit just because the quarterbacks are very attention getting. And I think there's quite a bit of cognitive dissonance. Um, you know, people are like very much of the mind of the sharp mind are like, yeah, this is happening. But everyone else is kind of like, I don't believe you, basically. So there's a problem there where the reporters and people with inside information are saying, hey, this is what's happening in my mock draft but there's still quite a bit of divergent thought. And so right now the Justin Fields is my top or second, my third quarterback in the, in the data and Mac Jones is the fifth. So, and the reason behind that is that when people are thinking, when is Mac Jones going to go? It's kind of like, well, he can go at three, but after pick three, it really could be a lot of different spots. And so that's why 
if he's not going to go at three, the question is, when is he going to go? And that's a hard question. And so he's fallen now to be, you know, I think maybe even outside the, the top 10 in my, in my, uh, in my data. So and I think that's, or at least he's on the way to that, if not, if he's not there already. And I think that's the reason is that people have been so dialed into him being with the 49ers, even mocking him quite a lot at pick 12 when the 49ers still had pick 12. So, you know, I think right now, Justin Fields is, is the, is that third quarterback in the data for me, but we'll see. I mean, it's time to put up or shut up the mock drafts that are going to be published in the next week are my mock drafts that get weighted the highest. So, you know, in the past I've been wrong when there's also like late breaking information. So like 2018 Baker Mayfield, where, you know, he was projected to be the third overall pick, but then kind of later in the day on draft day, it started leaking that the Browns wanted to take him first overall. So I missed on that one and I'll be okay to miss out if that's what happens. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of uncertainty with, with Mac Jones and uh, Justin Fields, I think less so because the idea is that if he doesn't go at three, well, he could go at number four and, and there's a decent chance he stays still in the top 10. But for Mac Jones, it's like, is he going to be at pick three or is he going to be at pick, you know, 20? Like who knows? It's, it's quite uncertain. Yeah. And so I pull, I pull up his little draft stock chart and uh, I think it's really funny because there is a bubble uh, kind of, kind of at the, you know, at the end of March into April, you can look, he's, he's like a, a Dutch tulip or something that he, he peaks really high. It is interesting to look at the distri- distribution between um, expert and fan, just because on this graph, they, you know, fan is orange and expert is blue. And you can kind of see that maybe there were some more fan mock drafts that were driving Mac Jones being higher than some experts, but on the whole, it looks like that information kind of averages out, which is uh, really, really nice. Okay. I have one, uh, two, two more things that I want to get to. Um, and I'm going to do the TC specific one first uh, on this podcast. We have one uh, running segment and that segment is say nice things about Max Duggan, TCU's, uh, TCU's quarterback. And we put everyone on the spot with it. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of space to say uh, nice things about Max Duggan. You know, uh, Max is a quarterback and yeah, that's pretty much all I have to say about Max Duggan. He seems like I, I don't know him personally. Um, so I, I have no comment. Um, you know, I, hopefully he has a, a good year this coming year, but, uh, hopefully my, uh, my guy, Kenny Pickett at Pitt has a better year, but I hope I wish the best for both of them. Is that okay? That's, that's wonderful. I did, I did a little, a little kind of dumb toy model about quarterback improvement a couple of weeks ago. And I kind of got, you know, basically a range of outcomes for Max Duggan based on returning production and experience and everything. And Kenny Pickett was his, uh, 2018 Kenny or 2019 Kenny Pickett was his, uh, his floor. So oh, no. uh, they, they could be kindred. Um, yeah, the, the, the best response to that segment was pro football focus is Anthony Trish came on. And uh, I didn't know Anthony as well as I do now then. Uh, and I said, say nice things about Max Duggan. And his response was, uh, and we just had awkward silence on the podcast for a minute. <laughs> um, okay. My, my last question is one that's probably going to be way too nerdy for anyone uh, except uh, you and I to talk about. So I'm, I'm okay with that. But um, these mock drafts, they're, they're happening throughout the week, right? So some people are releasing them on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever, and you're scraping them on Saturday night or whatever and posting them at a regular time and kind of aggregating over. Have you looked at any like temporal variation to see if, you know, a big board says X, 
So other mock drafts change their mind and agree with him, or they change their mind and disagree with him. Is there any kind of like lag and lead in, you know, you have uh, on this, in the sample, you have, you know, 1200 something mock drafts. Surely if something's published on Monday, someone's going to see it for the mock draft they put on Friday. Do you account for that? Do you see any of that? Have you played around with that? So I think there is some mock drafts are definitely a lagging indicator for the most part. Um, and I think partially there's like a follow the leader mentality around, you know, players that get mocked from kind of the, the creme de la creme of your draft analysts. So people pay attention to what they have to say, and they've also been historically accurate. So they're worth paying attention to. Um, but yeah, I mean, most mock drafts are published on Monday. There's like a whole mock draft Monday hashtag. And so a lot of mock drafts get published Monday. And so I always try to publish um, data um, on Sunday so that you have data from kind of the whole week. Um, but there's an argument to be said I should publish them on Monday, but, but yeah, there is a it's, a, it's a lagging indicator unless it's something kind of, um, but they tend to react pretty quickly to big events. Um, so, you know, when the 49ers uh, traded uh, up into the number three pick, you know, you saw very quickly the next day or two, you know, a lot of movement um, from, uh, not as much from Mac Jones at that point, but from Trey Lance. Um, and then Justin Fields is kind of already up there, so there's not as much movement for him to have. But you saw Trey Lance, a lot of movement. You saw some Mac Jones movement. Um, but for other things, it can be slower to react to, like injuries to a player or decline in a player. There's some things that, you know, you, if they're a high-profile player, you might notice more, but if, you're, if they're not, you just don't see it. But, but yeah, it varies you know, I did a, a blog post once about Tua Tungavailoa's injury last year. And what happened was, was that right after he got injured, there was a, suddenly people just had no clue about whether he was going to be in the draft. So he dropped out of some first round mocks. People didn't know as much if, um, you know, he was going to be healthy. Um, and then, you know, eventually it got back on track and he was back in the, you know, top 10. So there's a, there's a reaction that's lagged, but then it kind of eventually, ideally, if it happens enough time before the draft, it can kind of correct itself. But yeah, I mean, it's, there, it is a, ultimately a lagging indicator. It's usually not a leading indicator. And I think that's fine because, I mean, when you view this as kind of we're hoping to get towards equilibrium, basically. And so a lot of this information, you know, the league might already know that player X is really good, but we didn't see it because we're not expert football people. And so this data can kind of be in some ways, a measure of sentiment, and um, but ultimately, um, hopefully with an eye on predictive uh, power. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So the um, the NFL draft is uh, coming up. It is it is next week, starting on uh, Thursday, correct? Uh, and going to be going strong the whole weekend. I, I imagine you will have um, content uh, out and about. Where can the people find you online? What can they expect over the next uh, over the next week leading up to the draft? So, yeah, so um, grindingthemocks.com is the website. Um, so normally I update the data on a weekly basis, but on the day, on the week of the draft, I'll be updating every day. Um, and uh, during the draft, um, I'll probably just kind of be watching and occasionally posting um, uh, charts, uh, updated charts of players where they get drafted relative to ex expectation. Um, and the first night of the draft, I'll be on a live stream hosted by Football Outsiders, who I occasionally have written stuff for, and you as well. Um, so the the mothership sorts for us. Um, so yeah, so I'll be uh, on a live stream for the on the first night of the draft, starting at like eleven thirty. So I'm gonna need like some strong coffee because I've been 
kind of working all day to collect as much of the last coming in mock drafts as possible. Um, and yeah, my Twitter account is at B-E-N-J underscore Robinson. And that's where you can find uh, a lot of the charts and, and stuff that, I, uh, that I'll publish focused on the data. Awesome. When the draft is done and all the picks have settled, what is the first thing you're going to do uh, as, as you kind of go into the off season? Um, so I usually take a break a little bit. Um, so I kind of walk away from it to kind of let <laughs> things settle. Um, so um, there's some post-draft analysis that I do, uh, but usually after the, when the draft is over, um, I take some time off of work so I can kind of recharge. Um, and so uh, I don't usually start collecting data again until um, the summer at that point. So um, I usually take like a month or two off. We'll see how long I do that this year. But, um, but yeah, I usually take some time away to kind of recharge and let it sit, let it stew. And then I use the summer as opportunity to do kind of research and development and special projects. And then I usually don't, my, I'm usually not, I'm probably not going to be publishing data again until you know, January of that year. So it kind of gives me an opportunity to work on the product and everything. So there's no rush to really have to keep it a year long thing or whatnot. Yeah. So I usually take a big, uh, big deep sigh of relief, hope that I was more right than I was wrong and uh, move on. Awesome. Awesome. Um, well, Ben, this was uh, super fun and super insightful and uh, just kind of a good look into the draft and, and how to think about the draft. Um, again, you can find Ben's work grinding the mocks.com uh, the website and the app and the tool um, and, and follow him on Twitter. Um, as always, I'm, uh, I'm Stats of War on Twitter and uh, thanks for listening today.